Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumlips-Tay territory within the unceded traditional lands of Sequepum-Ulu. And today's text, The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie, takes place in Wellpinit and Reardon, Washington, the traditional home and current-day territory of the Spokane people. Joe, mm-hmm. I have read this book before. Okay. I was a little bit nervous to revisit it again, mm-hmm. but then you emailed me to say you had booked a guest to chat about it with us, and then I yes. was just excited. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. We're not alone. We have a very, very special guest in Dr. Debbie Reese. So we've talked about Dr. Reese's work before, uh, the blog American Indian in Children's Literature is one that we've come back to a few times for reference points. So it's so exciting to have Debbie Reese here with us today. Hi, Debbie. Hi. Now I want to go and find what you said before. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm always curious about, you know, how the the work that I'm doing on the blog is faring out there and how, how it's being received and used. And I like emails. I get emails that thank me for what I'm doing. Um, But I don't really hear much about podcasts, so I might have to go look. (laughs) We can flag you to some episodes, but it's certainly, you know, I think in particular the work you've done on representation Mm -hmm. and asking us to think maybe a bit more critically about representation, that was all really echoing for me in my reread of Sherman Alexie's book. So we're going to get into like the layers of uh, issues with both Sherman mm-hmm. Alexie and the text itself. But I will say that the thing that was most resonant and on the surface for me was the idea of sort of uh, this narrative of like escaping community and this idea that progress and opportunity for Arnold is really only available to him outside of his community. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure I would have been such a critical reader of that theme if I hadn't sort of read your thoughts about it on your blog. Maybe, I guess, we usually start with a plot summary around here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I guess we might want to do that. But maybe before we could maybe ask, Debbie, why were you willing to come and chat about this text with us today and maybe share some of kind of your history with these conversations? Okay, so it's basically you're kind of asking me for a personal history of my experiences with this book and this author and um it's it's a rocky one i have to say (laughs) when the book came out in 2007 i was very excited about it i had already known about alexi's work because i was at the university of illinois and we were trying to build a native studies program in a native house so um there were a very small group of native people there it was the case of Native people fighting for visibility on the campus Mm. where the mascot was everywhere. And it was a stereotypical mascot. So I knew his work in in his film Smoke Signals. I knew some of his other books. I had um, watched also The Business of Fancy Dancing. Smoke Signals came out in 98 and Fancy Dancing in 2002. And he had come to Champaign-Urbana to speak a couple of times. And I had dinner with him a couple of times, you know, when a faculty goes out with a guest. So I felt a connection 
to him personally and professionally and academically because of all of that. Um, so I was excited for the book and I uh, favorably reviewed it. No, no, I didn't really review it. I just talked about it. I didn't really go into much depth on that. I'm not sure what, what Brenna was, was seeing, but we, you should tell me what you saw in a little bit. But I did, I did think there was a lot of value to the book because of the context in which I was working, again, with the mascot, but also the work that I was doing in children's literature. It was like everywhere you turn around, it's Island of the Blue Dolphins and mm-hmm. um, books that like that that were um, that are written by white people that desperately, terribly, dreadfully misrepresent Native people and that teachers won't let go of in right. spite of what. And so I thought, well, okay, this might get them to let go, um, mm. this book, because it does the things that I wanted books to do, which was to be set in the... Um, present day right and that had hit on those themes that we as native people deal with all the time everywhere so so mascots are in that book so you could see that there were many layers of of what i found in the book and in him that had appeal so it was it was also just it was kind of you know when i look back on that i feel like a sadness i think because the experiences of native people in too many places on this continent is one of really wishing for visibility and representation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I think when people are in that sort of space, they they grasp onto something and they hold to it very tightly. And um, it takes a bit of time before you can step back and say, yeah, you know, that's not really what I thought it could be. So that's where I came eventually. And after having conversations with other people and talking more about him and his books and his writing, I have taken it a giant step back away mm. from him and then and then of course um the allegations of sexual harassment came out and and when those stories started to come out it was like a dam broke um i may have said that in that open letter it mm. was in native circles there were so many stories from so many people at so many levels so it's like uh, school teachers and college professors and writers all who had really infuriating, I guess is the right word, infuriating interactions with him, things that he did that hurt them. Mm -hmm. And when I heard from a teacher, high school teacher, how he had hurt her students, I was really, really upset because those are the young people we want to be lifted. We want to, to affirm native kids and he actively hurt them according to the account that his teacher shared and so there were so many examples of that and i thought mm-hmm. oh, i just can't i just mm-hmm. can't and i think the letter that the american indian library association wrote when they decided to rescind the award they gave him for the book it gets at precisely that the importance of community the role of the people in our communities and why they matter so much He was actively hurting so many. You know, you talk about this idea of people finding representation and holding on to a text really tightly. I see that with this text and and not exclusively with Indigenous readers. I think for sure there are, you know, young Native kids who see themselves maybe for the first time on the page and to ask them to let go of a book that has been that for them is, is really complex. I also see that, though, with folks who see, you know, disability represented here, um, Mm -hmm. who see poverty represented here, like all things that Joe and I talk all the time about the the lack of stories 
of these kinds of experiences in young adult literature, right? Like YA, as many strides as have been made, YA is still really dominated by like white middle class Mm -hmm. teen experience. And so we have something different here that I think, especially in 2007, was particularly kind of groundbreaking. But as you talk about, it's so layered, inextricably layered with harm. Uh, and, you know, you, you say in that open letter, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to quote you to yourself a little bit. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Good. You say, you say, Alexi's books don't give readers the depth of understanding that they need to know who we are, what our histories have been, what we face on a daily basis, and what gives us the strength to carry on. Far too many people adore him and think they're hip to native life because they read his books. Um, and I think, you know, there are similar experiences in the adult fiction world. You know, I think about the the dominant role that someone like Thomas King played in the literary landscape up here in Canada for a long time as sort of like, well, we published that Indigenous writer, so we're publishing, right? <laughs> that one person. That yes. one person. I'm going to jump in right quick here and we sure. might circle circle back to that, but Thomas King is not Cherokee. That's mm. uh, that's another whole conversation that you could have about identity and who claims what and why and how and how that works and does not work. So Thomas King, though he's marketed as a Cherokee writer, he's not a citizen or didn't have connections to the Cherokee nation. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, there's a whole conversation there about how people yeah. market themselves and what claims they make versus what claims get imposed on them and whether they resist. And there's all kinds of stuff, right? And, yeah. you know, here particularly, I think in arts and culture, Joe and I have sort of waded into these waters tentatively, these conversations about like who claims you versus mm-hmm. what you claim as identity and those kind of pieces. And and I guess some of those conversations resonate with me in Arnold's experiences in the book because, you know, Sherman Alexia said this is a semi-autobiographical book and we really have a central character here who kind of paints himself as the chosen one, right? Like he's <laughs> going to be the one to leave the community. He's going to be the one to be the famous writer. And everybody else is really just playing a role in his story, right? And so when I see you, you say in this letter things like, you know, we don't get a depth of understanding from Alexi's books, I really see that echoed in Arnold's character here. Hmm. Yeah. Joe, do you want me to do the plot summary and then we can circle back to the discussion? Yeah, because I feel like we're all holding back just a little bit because we need to make sure that anybody who hasn't had a chance to read the book isn't feeling lost. So let's quickly do the plot summary and then we can actually get into the meat of this. Okay, cool. So this book follows our 14-year-old protagonist, Arnold Spirit Jr. And that name is sort of the beginning of this split identity experience that our protagonist is having. When he's with his family and friends on the Wilpinet Reserve where he lives, he's junior. When he makes the decision to transition to the all-white high school in the nearby town of Reardon, he goes by Arnold. And this tension between these two identities is really sort of the central tension in the text. Mm -hmm. 
Arnold, or Jr., has been born with some birth defects. He was born with hydrocephalus. He has seizures, poor eyesight, stuttering, and a lisp as a result of these things. And so he's really quite terribly bullied at his original school um, and by the people within his community. And so Jr. has this kind of challenging relationship to the people around him. He has a best friend named Rowdy who beats up everyone except <laughs> Junior and pretty much, you know, uh, kind of protects him and cares for him. But on the first day of high school, Junior has this experience where he gets his textbook in, I think it's geometry class. And when he opens it up, he realizes that this is the same textbook that his mother used. So this geometry textbook is like at least 30 years old. Mm -hmm. And He's furious, so he throws the book, he hits his teacher in the face, he gets suspended. And when his teacher comes to talk to him about it, instead of being like, hey, you broke my nose, his teacher is like, you need to get out of this town. Mm -hmm. And Junior takes him seriously and enrolls in the nearby school of Reardon, where he's the only native teenager at the school. He develops a crush on the most popular girl, Penelope. He tries to become friends with the star athlete, Roger. And after a while, both because of his skill in basketball and because of the sort of way he carries himself, he actually kind of integrates into the school community and comes to feel a lot more at home at the school in Reardon than he ever did within his home community. And that's really the story. He goes on to become a surprise basketball star. He gets amazing grades. And in the background, we have the stories that are going on at home, which include a lot of alcoholism, death. He loses his grandmother, his sister, and his uncle over the course of the narrative. And there's always this tension between kind of the tragedy of what he's experiencing at home and the opportunities that are being provided to him out in the world. Mm -hmm. And basically at the end of the book... He reconciles with Rowdy after they have had a big fight that's lasted the majority of the text. But he kind of has this sense that he will be leaving forever, eventually, and that no one else will. And that's kind of where the book ends. Right. Yeah. So where should we begin with this? Because we did end up getting two responses from folks. So we heard from both Victoria and Miriam about this. So we'll be folding in their observations as we have our conversation but one of the things that stuck out to me as a settler colonial was I found this text very endearing and very accessible. And I feel like if I didn't know that we were dealing with a problematic author or a text that wasn't doing everything that it could or possibly should do, I would think, wow, this is a really successful book. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a fair point. Like, I think the context here and the events that have kind of unfolded since 2018 and since so many people really bravely came forward to share their stories about this literary giant, like, I think that has been the case. And it's been a book that has been, I think, particularly embraced by liberal and progressive audiences. Like, this is the most challenged book in the U.S. from 2010 to 2019, which is what puts it on our list, Joe, for our Banned and Challenged Book Club. Mm -hmm. And the reasons why are, you know... Is it language? Is it sex? 
It is language. It is sex. It is references <sighs> to drugs and alcohol. It is anti-Christian content. Oh, my goodness. No. Some schools really didn't like the anti-Christian content. Um, but it's also things like acknowledging poverty. In Antioch Township, Illinois, the book was banned for addressing sensitive cultural topics. Can you hear my air quotes, Joe? <laughs> I can hear your eyes rolling. <laughs> um, you know, in, in Stockton, Missouri, it was about sexual content, violence, and language. It's been in a situation where, like, in Newcastle, Wyoming, every student had to get their parents to sign up. Uh, paper allowing them to read it otherwise they were given an alternate book the kinds of things we see here are the kinds of challenges that often are placed against books written by minoritized writers mm -hmm. written by folks trying to address some kinds of social injustice like these are really typical challenges that we see but it's had a lot of them right and, and not least because you know it's being seen through this colonial lens as being, you know, somehow anti-Christian, somehow against America, right? Those kinds of, of claims and, and framing. But <laughs> in addition to that, we have this, we have the, the history and the context of Alexi's actions with other writers and within literary community and the harm that he's done to other Native writers in particular, so yeah, I think this is a challenging book for us to talk about, as most of the letters indicated when they came in. I wonder, Debbie, since we have you here, this is not something that's new, as Brenna suggested, to marginalized writers, like having their books banned or criticized or uh, challenged. Do you feel like this is a particular issue for indigenous writers and how does that make you feel as somebody who's kind of embedded in the critical discourse around that i guess what i want to say about some of that current banning that's happening is that of course this is on those lists for mm -hmm. all the reasons that you all have said but i guess i can connect some dots here that you were saying Brent, about him being the chosen one mm -hmm. and his own speaking outside of the book but as speaking as himself as a writer self-referential holding his own books up being disparaging of others or not mentioning them at all i'm the only one this is mm -hmm. who you should read mm -hmm. when i think about that speech from him and what we're seeing right now with the banned books and challenged books and seeing that his is there over and over and over and that no other writers are on that, no other native writers, I'm sorry, are on those lists except for the book that I adapted with Jean Mendoza, An Indigenous People's History of the United States for Young People. Oh, yes. We're big fans of that. <laughs> okay. That's on some of the lists. Um, but nothing else is. And I think that kind of you know, that that's proof that his speech is doing exactly what we don't want it to do as a Native person in Native community. Part of what we do at, at all of our gatherings is um, a sharing of what we have mm -hmm. and taking care of each other and the dances when we're dancing and, and dance, a better way of thinking about Native dancing is kind of like it's prayer in motion. So um, during those 
times when we're dancing, we are instructed very, very carefully that what we're doing is not for us as individuals, but that the dancing and praying that we do as we dance is for the well-being of community. Mm-hmm. Not just our native communities either, but beyond that. So it's kind of like it's for the world, basically. So he just doesn't do that. If he did, I think that we would see more Native writers on mm-hmm. those band lists because the, the reasons he's on there, you can find those same things in many of the books by other Native writers for kids. Right. Native writers who are writing for kids are saying similar things. But that really bothers me that they just don't have the visibility to get to get challenged, to get banned. And I think he could have helped It's a weird thing. I don't want them to be banned. I don't want (laughs) them to be challenged. I just want them to be known. And it just seems like they're not known. Because they do do some similar themes as what he does in here. You know, mascots appears in many writers' stories. So, yeah. I was going to say, you know, Joe and I have covered... We always jump when we see a text by an Indigenous writer that actually gets adapted to screen because it's happens so so rarely um and it's for young adult audiences we often jump on it and you know when i was originally putting together our challenged books list for this book club series i was really struck by the number of books we've read that get nowhere near the list like and you know the first writer who comes to my mind is is richard van camp who's the lesser blessed is like right I mean, if more people so read good. that, it would certainly be challenged, right? Yes. And it's a book that, that Joe and I both really, really responded to. And and, mm-hmm. and I think there's a lot in what you're saying here, this idea of if only there was more visibility, if only there was more awareness of more different kinds of writing happening. And you're right that someone with the profile of a Sherman Alexi could have facilitated that. And it's telling that that didn't happen, right? Even before the accusations uh, came right. about. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. He had that opportunity. It's interesting when we have these discussions about representation and what does good representation look like? What is meaningful? You know, is it simply about numbers, right? Like, do we just want to see more texts published by marginalized communities so that we're uplifting voices? And I definitely think that's one And then the other piece is we want proper representation, right? Like, I think that's one of the reasons why Brenna and I are so grateful to have your website available, because we sometimes look at books and think, okay, this is doing a good thing. And then we'll check your site and it'll be like, oh, okay, there's more going on here. And it's up to us to learn how to educate ourselves about these issues. But also, you know, yeah, it's just tough because there's still such a a tokenizing element to all of this right like i'm intrigued by the idea of what does representation look like and what do we owe our own communities like alexi has this platform he has the capacity to elevate other people and he's deliberately choosing not to in favor of sort of hoarding and taking all the prizes for himself all the space for sure. You know, there's there's a, a writer, a, a journalist up in Canada. You might know. His name's Duncan McHugh, I think. Oh, yeah. Duncan McHugh, for sure. Yeah. So he had an article a few years ago where he talked about the four Ds, the letter D, like Debbie, four mm-hmm. Ds that in his, I guess, study of, of journalism, that the stories about Native people that get 
published in newspapers tend to be around these four D's, that they have to have drums, they have to have dancing, they have to have drinking, and they have to have death. Mm. Oh my gosh. And, and that's how the national media will pick up a story, if it's got right. that. And if it doesn't, then they just don't want it. And I think, I think that's definitely true. And, and all of those things are precisely what we have in Alexei's book. Mm-hmm. That's not the entirety of our existence as Native people, and yet that's what we're reduced to. And so his novel takes up you know, lots of shelf space in libraries, and there aren't others beside it that can say, and here's this experience Mm -hmm. that doesn't have every family experiencing death at the rate that his family does, Mm -hmm. particularly due to drinking. That in particular is one that really bothers me because the the stereotype of a drunken Indian is so prevalent. And he just, his book really seems to like dwell on that. And that's not the experience across any culture, native or not. There are studies that document that because so many people think, well, you guys have a gene problem or some kind of metabolic problem. That's why you have alcoholism at such a high rate. There's a scientific belief (laughs) that that's why we have quote-unquote, so many alcoholics in Native communities. That's just not true. The research Mm -hmm. has been done to debunk that. Well, and what's so interesting is, like, Sherman Alexie's challenges with being self-conscious about that, by which I mean, you know, there's a scene in the book where Arnold goes to the dentist and has this experience of having to have 10 teeth removed all at once, and the dentist doesn't believe that... Indians feel pain in the same yeah. way as white people, so he doesn't give him enough pain relief. Yeah. And it's like, you can see that that scientific assumption is not correct, right? But it, it's almost like where Alexei chooses to put his attention and, and what story could be told, it's almost more tantalizing than what actually ends up on the page for me. Well, I'm curious, who is the audience for this book? Because reading it and honestly really enjoying it, thinking the illustrations were doing a lot of heavy lifting, thinking that the language was, yes, as I said, accessible and so on. I think I realized, oh, this book is for me, a settler (laughs) colonialist, like a white settler colonialist. And it sounds terrible, but it makes me wonder if this is more of a marketing strategy. Like, I'm going to write the content that white audiences expect to see about Indigenous communities because I know it's got those four Ds and it's going to get picked up. I think that criticism of the book for that very reason has been leveled by him by noted Native scholars that um, he's not really writing to lift Native people, Native readers, or Native community. He's really writing to sell to a white audience. Right. And so, yeah, I think your your observation about that is correct. Well, I th- one thing that made me sort of twig to that a little bit is I've read the book before, so I took this opportunity to read the 10th anniversary re-release that came out in 2017 because I'd never engaged with that additional content. Mm-hmm. And in that version, there's an essay at the end kind of an afterword from Alexi. And in it, he claims that Rowdy is the hero. Oh, And that Rowdy is based on his best friend, Randy, who dies very tragically, and he includes this moving eulogy that he gave at Randy's funeral. And I, I mean, it's very nice to say that Rowdy is the hero of the book 10 years later. Afterwards, Uh, right? After the thought. But I'm not sure that that is supported by the novel that we actually get, right? Like, Rowdy certainly has a character arc, 
mm-hmm. but to call him the hero of the text, I think, is a pretty self-serving claim to make after the fact, to me, right. as a reader. I had not seen that. I, I don't have that edition. Um, interesting to think about. And I think y- you're right. In some ways, it reminds me of J.K. Rowling and Ooh. her identification of, of Dumbledore mm-hmm. and his identity. Right. And people are like, what? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's there. You just have to look hard enough for it. <laughs> I'm yeah, sorry. Back, no, it go. is not there. <laughs> <laughs> Buy the book and read it again. Right. Yeah. So it's another maybe clever manipulation in marketing. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly how I felt. Manipulation is the exact word because it puts you on the back foot as a reader because you're like, wait, what? I just <laughs> I just finished the book and I didn't. Okay. Um, which isn't to say that the author can't be another reader of their text with another sure. set of, of views to bring to it. But I just thought it was really interesting in this essay that he includes where he positions himself as sort of returning to the community and giving this moving speech and he does a little bit of shaming of the people who used to bully him and it all felt very uh gross (laughs) kind of gross (laughs) right to turn around and say actually this was the hero of the book even though i am the one who is you know a very famous and successful writer Mm -hmm. you know i think i i would really like to i don't know I would like to know <laughs> who he is more in a way that feels like he's being real. Because mm-hmm. uh, so much of what he does is perform. So he's, he's always performing. He's performing on stage. He's performing with his writing and his readings and his video interviews. All of it is performing. It feels very that. And I would like to like get under that. Mm-hmm. That would help me, I think. Joe, shall we turn and look at some of the letters we received about uh, the book today? Yeah, because I will say one of the things that came about, particularly in Victoria's email, is this idea of using comedy to subvert tragedy. And while we've acknowledged that some of the tragedy in here feels maybe more deliberately manufactured or for a particular kind of audience to sort of check that box... I can't disagree with Victoria's claim that the use of comedy feels not subversive, but it feels well-structured to advance the the novel's interrogation of, like, how does Arnold survive in a really challenging world? Yeah, I agree. And you know, I'm going to read a little bit from Victoria's email here. She says, Comedy and laughter can be used to relieve tension in a stressful situation or to be a coping mechanism during tragedy, and both cases are true for this novel. Within the book, Arnold endures some horrible moments of tragedy in his life, and Victoria goes through those incidents here. But she goes on to say, moreover, with the humor inserted in the story, not only is there relief in the pain that Arnold is enduring, but it humanizes him as well. And she goes on to say, there are so many depictions of First Nations as having lives of tragedy and anguish, but there's a tendency for writers and especially white authors to dwell on these tragedies to the point where the First Nations person is seen as more of a statistic to pity rather than a human being who deserves empathy and respect. And I find that a really interesting perspective that Victoria is bringing that for her, the humor is this really humanizing factor because it does often work, right? Like the book is funny. And I think in particular, the cartoons are really effective at kind of Mm -hmm. underscoring the tragic moments with a certain amount of humor. But at the same time, Victoria is kind of challenging some of what we've already said, right? About the way tragedy is used in the book. So yeah, I wonder if, 
I wonder if Debbie, if you have any thoughts about the comedy aspect of the novel and how it functions. I think one of the things that that I liked about the humor and that Native people generally like is that very thing that most of the writing by outsiders is puts us as very stoic and humorless mm-hmm. when in fact we're very funny we laugh a lot we tell a lot of stories and a lot of jokes and so that works because it's so real to who we are and i think that's a plus mm-hmm. i was particularly taken when the white millionaire billionaire the rich white man shows up and tries to give back the grandmother's powwow outfit and everyone just laughs him off the reservation <laughs> and then they continue laughing through the rest of the day and i thought this is a really evocative image and It feels fresh compared to some of the other depictions that we see about settlers interacting with indigenous communities. And yeah, it's, you know, I feel like we're all used to a dances with wolves approach as opposed to something where it's like, get off my land. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. It really reinforces uh, Arnold's mom as one of my favorite characters in the book because she's so, she is so sharp and quick and her response to him is like, it's letter perfect. So I, I really enjoy her. Mm-hmm. It'd be fun to, to really sit down and map out these individual characters that are there, like like his mom. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about his sister? Because mm. I find her story, not, not to deviate away from the comedy, but I find her story to be the most tragic. But it's interesting because she's a character who's wholly absent the entire book, right? We never truly meet her. And yet we still feel a lot of sadness with what ultimately happens to her. Yeah. You know, when I, I reread the book for today's show and, and I was reading that, and I thought, oh yeah, we saw that already in Smoke Signals. Mm. Smoke Signals, the movie was based on some of his previous writing. So this idea of somebody burning alive because they passed out drunk is a recurring thing in some of his writing. Okay. I found the sister's story really underscored this idea that only Arnold can succeed because there's there are moments where you think that she's done the exact right thing right when mm-hmm. she finds her way to Montana and and you know Arnold believes that every reservation is going to look like the one he grew up on and that poverty is the only sort of perspective that that he can come from. Mm -hmm. And then she goes to Montana and she finds this really lively, vibrant community that's huge and sprawling and has all these opportunities. And, and so at first I was kind of like, Oh, okay. So we're going to have this kind of parallel life where they both leave and, you know, Arnold moves into kind of white society and tries to integrate himself there. Um, whereas his sister really just tries to find kind of a larger indigenous community that embraces her where maybe she didn't feel embraced at home. Mm-hmm. And then she and dies. Then nope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's like, oh, no, I thought that was going to be like our parallel example. And I guess, you know, it is our parallel example, but it's tragic, whereas Arnold's is triumphant. That's a good observation. I'm glad you brought that forward because it is. It's, it kind of dumps us right back in that he's the one. Yeah. Such a missed opportunity. It's such a missed opportunity in the way he describes it, right? Like even before, and I guess in retrospect, I just realized it's foreshadowing, right? But but the ways in which he describes, you know, her, her trailer as like this tin can that she lives in. And mm-hmm. he begins to undercut that alternative path 
earlier than her death. And yeah, I do think it's a shame and a missed opportunity because how interesting to imagine a life for his sister where she does get a happily ever after without having to walk away from the kinds of things that matter to her. Uh, There doesn't seem to be any space for that in this book. Yeah, it's interesting because she, you know, she died of smoke inhalation, I guess, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And as we're talking about him sucking up all the air in in any space, (laughs) he kind of, he kind of, he killed her. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He did that to her. I think it just runs a little counter to what the book sometimes feels like it's trying to do as well. Like when I think about this book, I do think a lot of the more sort of humorous interactions, and maybe that's not giving the book enough credit. But it sometimes feels like when we're leaning into the tragedy of it, it renders the comedy obsolete to the point where I'm like, well, why are we trying so hard to be funny? That's an interesting question. I don't know. I I think it's just like, Brenna, you said we've read a lot of indigenous (laughs) texts that unfortunately do have an air of tragedy to them. Mm. And I think that's fine when the purpose is to present a certain kind of story and it doesn't feel like that's what we're trying to do here and yet we end up in the exact same spot well and we've talked about this on the show on the the real pressures on different communities not just indigenous writers you know we've talked about this also and we've talked about trans writers Mm -hmm. this this pressure that publishing seems to place mainstream publishing anyway seems to place to create, well, exactly what Debbie referred to as the, as the four Ds, right? To tell these kind of tragic porn stories. But you're right that that isn't the end of Arnold's journey. And yet, I find this book funny. I find this book um, sort of enjoyable. I like the character development. But I don't find this book joyful. Right. And... I find that to be an interesting contrast because I think it very easily could have been a joyful book, except that Arnold is so sort of really focused on showing us that there is nothing good in the place he has come from. And I, I find that hard to get past as a reader. You know, I think, I think part of what bothers me overall, and I'm thinking about what you're saying here and then thinking about his um, picture book that came out. Thunderboy Jr., I think was the title of it. Have you guys looked at that? No. No, I know of it, but I haven't read it. You should pick it up and look at it because it's, um, the kid doesn't like his native name. He wants a normal name. And so it it feels like an echo of the book. That just came out a couple years ago, but it feels like an echo of what he did in 2007. Hmm. The character Arnold in that case, wanting to step away from the reservation and the culture. And here we have a picture book over 10 years later that is doing the same thing, maybe almost 20 years later, that's kind of doing the same thing. He doesn't want that name. He wants a normal name. In other words, he wants a white name. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know, for someone who's supposed to be lifting Native, or not, maybe he he never agreed to do that. (laughs) Maybe Mm -hmm. we're expecting that. Maybe we're putting Mm -hmm. that on him. And he never wanted to do that. I don't know. But that is how he made his life, is using Native culture to create that career, to do the things that he wants to do. I want to transition back to the accusations against Alexi because I want to take a look at Miriam's email. And Mm -hmm. what I found interesting about Miriam's response. So Debbie, Miriam's a longtime listener of the show and she lives in the Netherlands, I believe, Joe, is that right? Yes. Yeah. And so it's completely different cultural context. And she said, 
in her letter, she said, you know, she had looked up the background of Sherman Alexia. She'd read the accusations and she said, you know, this hit a little too close to home. I once had a publisher who published my poems and then began to try things with me because he thought I should be grateful that I was a published poet now and I should thank him. Of course, he was married and a lot older than me. Nothing happened, but I do know how this works and I will not be reading any more books by Sherman Alexi. This experience is not new, right? No. The powerful writer who uses that power and prestige, particularly like within creative writing programs, which is, I believe, where some of Alexi's predation happened. Um, this is a really common story. And I think, you know, it gets at kind of what Debbie was just saying, like maybe he never wanted to be the model, but you, when you accrue that kind of cultural power and prestige, mm-hmm. you know, for better or for worse, it puts you in a position where... Yeah, you have power over other people and the choices that you make with that power, uh, you actually are accountable for them, right? I mean, it takes a long time sometimes and some of the accusations against him go back a fair ways. But I was just, you know, intrigued when I read Miriam's response that that for her, there was this sort of evocation of her own trauma in hearing what mm-hmm. had happened in that history and how, you know... We have this debate all the time, right? Can you divorce the author from the book? Should you even try? In a response like Miriam's, you see that there's like a really, like a visceral response to the kinds of accusations that we read about with Sherman Alexie. And I don't think people can necessarily be expected to say, oh, well, I'll separate the book from him then. Yeah, I don't think it's realistic. And I think she's an adult and she's different from what we have with teachers who are using this book mm-hmm. in a classroom or, or right. want to use it mm-hmm. in a classroom because what happens there in educational settings is that you do the study, the author study. Who is the author? What else did you write? What can we learn about him? And so it's not, you can't divorce the author no. from the work when you're in a classroom because part of what you're trying to do is encourage students to read more yeah. and, and yeah, to do that, point. right? You read <laughs> yeah. more. You read, who is this guy? And the goal is to try to get kids to read more and and if the child these are teen well middle school and teenage readers perhaps that are reading it and they do their author study and they come across that and they themselves have been like Miriam having had experiences similar to the ones that are out in the press about Alexi it will be hurtful mm-hmm. I can see kids saying why did you do that to me teacher Mm-hmm. Did you know, teacher? Because I, I personally think that we as parents put a lot of faith in our teachers, mm-hmm. in the teachers of our children, that they will help them, they'll educate them, they'll give them things that are good, and they won't hurt them. And so it it's it's also not quite fair for teachers, as we're talking about Alexi, you know, maybe he didn't deserve this, he didn't want this, but the realities of being a person on the earth, working as a writer, (laughs) working as a teacher, come with responsibilities for those who we interact with. And so I think that, that, um, the fact that he has this history that he admits to, so it's not like an unfounded accusation. He has acknowledged it and there's more of it. Uh, some of the writers that he mentored at the Institute of American Indian Arts have come forward also. Mm-hmm. Therese Maillot has also said, you know, yeah, there's problems. Yeah. And she wanted his blurb off of her book. So she asked for that to happen. And, and she's recently, I'm talking about the author of Heartberries. Oh, a wonderful book. Right. Um, she has tweeted recently that she doesn't think he should be 
have any opportunities to work with women in any context ever mm-hmm. again. Wow. So, so those are strong statements. Yeah. <laughs> and so anyway, I guess thinking about kids and what they, they feel when they're in a classroom and what their parents will feel like. We want our teachers to be informed and to do well by our kids, especially kids who come from experiences that are ones of sexual harassment, sexual abuse, or or with Native kids. I think it's also worth noting that the most recent incident of challenge to this book that I know of was actually about uh, anti-Black racism in the book, and particularly the passage where the N-word is used, and there's Mm. a comparison to sexual intercourse with animals. That was read aloud in a grade eight classroom, which let's just start with, that's a choice a teacher made to do. Not sure that's a great choice. Um, And the victimization that the only African-American student in that classroom felt in that moment. I think, too, and something I wanted to raise on the show today is that there's a fair amount of sort of casual homophobia in this book as well. Yes. And Alexi has a really, (laughs) I was going to say he has an interesting approach to homophobia, which sounds very (laughs) intellectualized, but like there's this sort of winking nodding, right? Like Mm -hmm. Arnold knows he's engaging in homophobia when he makes these jokes with Rowdy. And it's almost like we're being asked as readers to say, well, he's acknowledging it, so it's okay. But I wonder about the impact on, you know, a queer or a closeted reader who's coming up against this book in a middle school context and and what that experience is like. You know, Raquel Rivera, in in an essay she wrote about censorship, she says, you know, this is an excellent book. It has a lot of useful material for a boy entering his teens. But there's a scene in Part-Time Indian when a racist joke is told and the protagonist is compelled to fight. For me, the joke was nothing more than a tool to repel the plot. In the story, it's duly vanquished and forgotten, but the joke stayed with my son, and Ooh. he continued to be bothered by it. Right. And so I guess it's like there's a question about the responsibility of both the anti-Black racism and the homophobia in the text, even kind of separate from all these other contextual issues we've been talking about, that I wonder if Alexi, I'm just not sure that the way he handles it is sophisticated enough to undo the damage of choosing to include it in the text, if that makes sense. You know, in some ways, it it seems like he occupies that white position Mm. that Native people and probably many people encounter a lot when you're from a population or demographic that has been marginalized. Um, When you're trying to explain something and the answer is, well, you just don't get it. (laughs) There's multiple ways of that being waved away or dismissed or um, it's just a joke. You You know, the ways that people... White mm-hmm. people will do that to Native and people of color, to anyone who's the butt of a joke. And so it's kind of like, I didn't mean it, but the damage is done. Mm-hmm. And it becomes your issue, the person who was the butt of the joke. Like this mm-hmm. parent talked about her kid having to carry that. Um, that's not that's not okay. Yeah, and I, I mean, we've got some like, we've already said the N-word gets dropped, the F-word gets dropped. I wonder... Like, Joe, what was your readerly experience of those scenes? Like, do you, if you can, like, transport yourself back into your kind of preteen self, I, I just wonder about how the homophobia in the text hit you particularly. Yeah, it's tricky, right? I mean, we're dealing with teen characters, and sometimes I feel like that means we need to give them a little bit of leeway because they're not as educated about some of the harm that they may be doing. You know, I 
definitely experienced homophobic taunting throughout my entire childhood so this rang to a certain extent authentic to me like this felt true and yet i mean i also think about this is a deliberate choice that an adult has made and we should acknowledge this is 2007 and brenna you and i have talked about texts that are far older than this that have been doing just as bad if not worse things in terms of the language and the depictions of certain types of people so it didn't strike me as unusual but particularly through like a contemporary lens i was like okay well this is not great well you know one thing that that came to mind as you were saying that is that we tend to try to dismiss or contextualize someone's speech by saying, well, he or she is a person of that time. Right. And that's meant to get them off the hook. But the fact mm-hmm. is that the people at that time didn't all think that same way. True. And the people receiving it at that time receive it the way we do today. It hurts no matter when it's delivered or who delivers mm-hmm. it. So I think that whole, it's a product of their time argument is a great big turd. The- <laughs> <laughs> You're like, no, I will not let you off the hook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not necessary. I think it's not. Didn't hmm. have to be there. <laughs> Didn't have to be there. It, 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 yeah, that, I hear that all the time. It just it gets me going, as you can tell. That's just the way people are. They play Indian. And I said, yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> but, but, it, but what does it do to have it in children's books over and over and over again? What does it right. do? It preserves the status quo and it makes it okay and just excuses it. And, and it also tells a tale about who we think of as quote unquote people, right? When we yeah. say that's just how people are. Right. Or what were, people? We mean yeah. white people, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Like, Absolutely. That's the default. Yeah. yeah. And I think it really, it sort of underscores that when, when we use the historical excuse, but though I don't really mean a but there, I'm underscoring the point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Just stop. Right. Full stop. <laughs> Full stop. Right. When we do read these books, you know, I guess, okay, here's, here's a more complex question, I suppose, maybe. I know that in my experience as a teacher, I've certainly had students respond to the representation of disability in the text. Okay. And the way a character like Arnold goes from being sort of dominated and bullied to being able to tell his own story. And I, without taking anything away from that, I think it's also interesting to think about how there's a lot of casual ableism in the text in the way Mm -hmm. Arnold refers to himself and obviously in the bullying taunts that he gets but there's also a choice that Alexi makes to standardize all of Arnold's speech right so even when Arnold is speaking even when we're getting a representation of his dialogue um, we never see his stutter we never see his lisp right and actually that's something Miriam wrote in her email too she said I did find it hard to remember that Arnold had a stutter and a lisp and looks different because of his medical issues because Mm -hmm. it just doesn't seem to be represented on the page at all I mean, to me, that's an interesting question about representation, right? To be told a character maybe has similar uh, challenges to you, but to see them mm, sort of washed away in the way the narrative is is told, I find an interesting choice. Now, of course, this is semi-autobiographical and the disabilities that Arnold has are those that Alexi experienced in his childhood as well, which I think, you know, probably complicates things as well. But I guess I'm I'm just wondering about the disability piece here and how the choices Alexi's making around representation and kind of choosing to represent everything in a fairly standard English and to really not 
depict the disability. I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking about how that works in the context of the narrative. It would have been a really different book if we had that on the page. Yeah. I think because, because it's true. It's not just washed out. It's erased. It's gone mm -hmm. because you know that if this is going to be the way kids are in a classroom, that they're going to taunt him over and over again. And mm -hmm. that would be, that would, that would be on the page too. Not just the stutter or the lisps, but how kids were responding to that. Cause that's how it is. Mm-hmm. That's why I said that I think some of the illustrations are doing heavy lifting because I found that that was where I was able to remember what Arnold looks like and what his interactions with peers and family and stuff. It helped me to ground that character and his disability a little bit more than what I was actually getting within the writing. Yeah. I do like those illustrations. I think those are... And I, and I wonder how much he was involved in that just... You know, typically most authors and illustrators don't have much conversation about what they're doing. So I right. do wonder about that in this case. Hmm. Yeah, I do too. And I couldn't find a lot of details about the like working relationship that he had with Ellen Forney, by the way, who's the, uh, the artist who does those illustrations. But you're right, Joe, they do a lot of that, particularly of the bullying. The depictions of the bullying, I think, are maybe more raw even in the images than they are in the text on the page. Mm-hmm. Debbie, I wonder if we can close by acknowledging that this book isn't doing everything that it can or should. And since you have what amounts almost to an encyclopedia of other texts or texts that people should be thinking about, can you give us maybe one or two authors that you think could fill this void? Like somebody who has a kind of comedic accurate representation of indigenous people that we should turn to instead of read this book comedic i guess i would say to look up aragon star she's kickapoo and she does graphic novels and her series is called super indian Ooh. and um, i think there's three three volumes of that right now it's hilarious it's 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 a graphic novel she's native her character is a superhero super indian and mm. why that comes to be it, it, it's absolutely the humor that native people really like that's part of why that that's so successful within native communities so look for that for sure it flies under the radar most people don't know it i push it when i can and okay. talk about it when i can but um yeah take a look at um super indian by aragon star and um this is not within the framework that you asked for. Mm -hmm. But in terms of <laughs> writers that I would recommend, the one that I really wish people would really dive into right now is Cynthia Lytic Smith's um, mm. Sisters of the Never Sea. Okay. And it's especially you guys, because you're, you're very much, from what I gather, your podcast pays attention to film. Right. Yes, so Sisters yeah. of the Never Sea is her telling of Peter Pan. Oh. Um, her retelling of Peter Pan. And I think it's absolutely brilliant so um there's so much in there and and i th i think teachers could really use that novel in their classrooms um in a very good way because everybody knows the disney peter pan and that's what she's writing to we're writing against in that book and she's doing it with native characters one who's also black indian so we have an accuracy of representation of of that as well in the novel so Sisters of the Never See, I really, you should read it and talk about it <laughs> and maybe bring her onto your podcast. Oh, that would be great. 
That'd be fantastic. I also want to let listeners know that um, every year at the beginning of December, uh, American Indians and Children's Literature puts together a best books list. And if you buy picture books in particular for little people in your life, that is a really good place to go to figure out what the best Christmas presents are going to be. It's at least what I use every year. (laughs) Good. And a a big takeaway that I think that I need to leave with with you and with your listeners is that is the heartbreaking fact that teachers will tell native writers oh my students didn't know that was a native character because they didn't have any feathers on which means like you know the 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 reading public doesn't know that we have a presence in the present day right Mm. if we don't look like um, dances with wolves they don't see us mm-hmm. so that's why I push so hard on realistic fiction things set in the present day on my blog and I want people to see that I want people to let go of classics and make different choices and right. I think it's important to note that those recommendations start as early as board books so yes this is something that little kids can can know from the second they start to open books that Indigenous people exist in the present tense from a range of communities. And there are lots of options out there to make sure that that's not, you know, that's not something that they learn for the first time later in life, that Mm -hmm. it's that it's always present in the media that they consume. And we can make those choices. Yeah. And that we're Native every day. You know, don't confine us to November. That (laughs) for sure. Because that's also like a big problem of course yeah the other thing that he has in this novel going along with the idea that we don't exist in the present day is that he talks about reservations as um like prison camps Mm. and i know that many reservations were established in that way and native people were moved to those reservations and they couldn't leave because the indian agent had to give them permission to leave and when they left without permission they were at risk for being killed and that's why we have off the reservation as a term that's used in the present-day conversations when someone's out of control. That's where it comes from. But not all of us had reservations of that kind. Pueblo people, we are on the homelands where we go back thousands of years. We weren't moved to a reservation and we were never confined. So when, when I come across that, in, and, and it's in his book, it's in the diary, he yeah. talks about reservations being like prison camps. I'm like, no, 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 they're not all like that. Please, can you like, don't mm-hmm. say that because it feeds another strand of misinformation. Right. All right. I'll stop now. <laughs> <laughs> this was fantastically helpful, Debbie. Just having you here to, to sort of bounce ideas off of and to share your wealth of knowledge was really valuable for discussing this text in a nuanced way. I think sometimes we can get quite concerned when there are allegations against a writer that, you know, we're approaching things in a good way. And so I just really appreciated the time you took with us today. It was very, very helpful. And I'm, I'm sure our listeners will agree. Mm-hmm. All righty. So, Debbie, if people want to get a hold of you, how might they be able to reach you? I'm on Twitter at Deb Reese, so they can go that way, or they can um, go to my blog and pull up a page that I have there and talk to me there. Fantastic. And we'll include links to that in the show notes okay. for today. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. All right. All right, Joe. So with this fantastic episode, we are going to close the book on book four of mm-hmm. Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star. And we're going to take a little break before we open the book for book five. So no homework this week, Joe. No homework right. for the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> but if you do want to get a hold of us to talk about this or anything else you've heard on the show, you can find us on Twitter at HKHSPod or on the hashtag HKHSPod. Joe, where do they find you? I can be reached at B, still my remote, and that's the letter B. 
and I'm at Brenna C. Gray, and that's Gray with an A. So until we come back with book five, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Come visit my website. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. See you Absolutely. on the web. <laughs>